what if this isn't what I want? I mean, what if I don't want to live the way you live? Oh, don't be ridiculous, Andrea. Everybody wants this. A young woman with no sense of style becomes the assistant to the editor of a high-profile fashion magazine. Special guest Samantha Noah joins us to chat about a chef who burns grilled cheese, the difference between slander and libel, and why a chief of medicine sometimes needs to be an asshole. Then we find out if the Devil Wears Prada stands the test of time. James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? James says gladiator with a glut Alan says as a father blah blah It's the test of time James and Alan have their say The movies you love still hold up today? Test of time James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Test of Time. I'm James Brief, and joining me, not just one Noah, folks. We have a special today. For the (laughs) price of one Noah, you get two of them. We got Alan Noah joining me, as always, and his sister joining us for the fifth time. It's Samantha Noah. Welcome. Hi, how are you? Hey, Sam. Welcome back to the show. It's so good to have you back again. Thank you for having me. I love doing this. Super (laughs) excited for this one. Are you? I am. Okay, well, I want to ask you why. See, here's the thing. (laughs) I've known you your whole life. True. And when you said that you wanted to come back on the podcast, I was not surprised. Good. But then you said that you wanted to come back on the podcast to talk about The Devil Wears Prada. And honestly, I was surprised because this movie doesn't seem very you understood however this is a classic movie it was an outstanding book i read it more than once really i did they did a very good job usually the movie versions are awful but they they did it justice so that's number one number two it's just such a good story it's so snarky Meryl is Meryl. She can do no wrong. She is perfect. And it's a chick flick. I mean, I do know guys who like this movie because it's just so fantastic, but it has everything. It has the music. It has the story. It has Meryl being specifically snarky. It's just a good movie. You know, it's interesting. You didn't say it has the fashion. I was wondering about that because, I mean... I'm not saying that you are a poorly dressed person. You are not. Don't don't misinterpret. But I feel like you're not like super into clothes and handbags and shoes and stuff like that. Um, I guess stereotypically speaking for being on Long Island, I guess <laughs> not as much, but I like it. I like the clothes in it. I mean, same thing with Sex in the City. You always have to know what they're wearing. I do look at the... um. The Met Gala looks. I I read a lot of TMZ. Okay. So, yeah, I do pay attention. And some of the looks in this were questionable, but some of them were awesome. But that's not the main point to enjoying this movie so much. Fair point. Now, I'm going to make a correction there. This movie, yes, it's about fashion, but it's about high fashion. Mm -hmm. And that's that's more... um, 
fashion as an art form. There's two kinds of fashion as far as I know. I, I believe there's high fashion and then there's what's called a pret-a-portois, which is ready to wear. And that's like H&M, like those models will literally have what's on the rack tomorrow versus the people in this film, they're wearing like you know, those things you see on the runway, no one actually wears those things. Couture. Exactly. Uh, so you know, people could have a, an interest in fashion, a not high fashion, and vice versa. Thank you for that, James. Because <laughs> I'll tell you, I, I mean, high fashion to me, for a long time, I, I just didn't understand it. I, I mean, I didn't understand why these models were walking up and down the runway wearing literally a, a floor carpet rolled around them. And I didn't understand what that was. Did you ever see it, Project Runway, Al? No, <laughs> never once, not even one episode, no. Okay, because I know I've seen three episodes of it. And <laughs> okay. It was when I was dating someone and they were watching Project One Way. It would be something like design a Barbie dress, but in real life. And everyone has to make these uh, Barbie dresses and stuff. I kept thinking, that's a great one. Like, that. that's nice. And they were always like the pathetic ones. And the ones that I thought were ridiculous would win. This happened like every single episode I saw to the point where by the third episode, I was basically like, oh, I don't like that one. That's probably brilliant. I, I don't dislike it. I, I'm just kind of sometimes in awe of it. I, I don't quite understand it the same way that you'll go to a modern museum sometimes. And I, I don't quite understand the blank canvas with one dot in the middle, slightly off center. But I find it kind of fascinating at the same time. It's walking art is basically what it's supposed to be. I mean, like Alan all throughout college and his jean shorts, walking art. That's that's his high couture. <laughs> I think you are saying that sarcastically. You think? However, it was a very postmodern artistic expression about um, um, the Middle East? It was a statement. Yes, there you go. Okay, so this movie came out in 2006, and I'm guessing you saw it in the theater? I don't remember. I don't think I saw this one in the theater, though. Okay. Yeah. I know I did. I know Courtney and I went to see it. It was a movie that Courtney picked, and I was like, yeah, sure, why not? I haven't seen it since then. James, did you see the movie when it first came out? No, no, I actually had never seen this film, um, and it was the first time I ever saw it. Okay. Well, why don't you tell our listeners what the movie's about? All right. This movie is about a young college graduate named Andrea, or Andy for short. Andy wants to work as a serious journalist, but instead she's hired to be the second assistant to Miranda Priestley, the editor-in-chief of a high-fashion magazine. Miranda is extremely demanding, and the job begins to take a toll on Andy and her relationships with her friends and her boyfriend, Nate. Andy adapts to her new surroundings with the help of Nigel, the magazine's art director who dresses Andy in haute couture. Soon, Andy begins to outshine Miranda's first assistant, Emily, even taking Emily's place at Miranda's side during Paris's Fashion Week. Ultimately, Andy needs to decide if she wants to be Miranda's protege or if she wants to remain herself. Whoa, how deep. <laughs> So this movie came out in 2006, and it was a pretty big hit, I remember, right? This was a smash hit. Uh, I mean, this is a understandably low-budget film. Meryl Streep, being the greatest actress in the world, I don't think she commands the salary that, say, Tom Cruise does. And uh, she is brilliant in this film, but there's no one else that's very famous in this film. Anne Hathaway was the Princess Diaries girl, and uh, also the Princess Diaries too. Um, The Princess Diaries 2, colon, royal engagement. 
Oh my God. And you also had some well-established actors. I mean, Stanley Tucci, he's fantastic. Uh, But you had people that are now A-list stars like Emily Blunt, but this is her breakout role. So this was not a very expensive film to, to make. And it was only made for $35 million. And it opened on June 30th, 2006 at number two with $27 million. It almost made uh, its budget back uh, on the first weekend. That weekend, interestingly, uh, the number one film is a film that uh, tried to reboot a franchise. But uh, this franchise reboot attempt was not as successful as they had hoped. But it did open at number one. What do you think that was, Al? June 2006. I remember this movie, and you and I went to see that movie together in the theater, Superman Returns. That's right. We probably saw it on a huge line, and people trying to get in opening night, and there was probably a, a bunch of people next to us seeing The Devil Wears Prada, you know, a modest $27 million, but it wound up making $124 million domestically. That's five times its uh, opening weekend, and $326 million worldwide. That's over nine times its budget. This is a smash hit. I mean, everyone made money on this one. It made Anne Hathaway a superstar, Emily Blunt launched her career, Lauren Weisberger, the author, everyone did well. Apparently, this movie did outgross Superman Returns internationally. When all was said and done, it was the bigger hit. That's not surprising because this film seemed to be really beloved, uh, whereas uh, Superman Returns, I I remember at the time, I I really liked it, but uh, it was not beloved. Right, right. It didn't restart the franchise like it was supposed to. And it is almost surprising that this movie being such a huge financial success that they never made a sequel. You know, there was a sequel to the book and there were talks about maybe they would come back and do another movie, but there wasn't a story. And so they decided not to and to leave it self-contained, which artistically probably was the right choice. But often that's not how Hollywood works, and it doesn't matter if there's a good story. If they feel like they'll make money, they'll just make another one. And uh, Meryl Streep and uh, everyone involved didn't want to. And I guess really without Meryl Streep, you don't really have a a sequel. Why bother? Absolutely. Why bother? Uh, Meryl Streep, she is uh, fantastic in this role. There's a great quote uh, I saw on uh, IMDb Trivia. And it says that on the first day of filming, Meryl Streep told Anne Hathaway, this is the quote, I think you're perfect for the role. I'm so happy we're going to be working together, Anne. And then she paused and Meryl followed it up with, and that's the last nice thing I'm going to say to you. And that was the last nice thing she said to her for all filming, because I guess it's a a method acting uh, technique. And she was completely indifferent to her. Nothing nice. uh, Very cold. So... Meryl was notoriously a method actress. This role was the reason she stopped method acting. She just said it was too emotionally draining. She heard the whole cast in between takes having a good time, and she had to be the mean boss. She wasn't included in things. So this role actually changed her. You know, she's still Meryl. We still have her. She's alive and kicking. She didn't go the method deep, dark path of, like, Heath Ledger, but I guess she learned from it and uh, figured out what her comfort level was, so she no longer is so submerged into her roles, I guess. That's a shame that she stopped doing it before Mamma Mia. I feel like that would be, like, when you'd really want to be Method. Well, can you imagine? She was nominated for the Academy Award for this role. I totally think she was robbed. I'll ask you guys, because you're pretty thorough researchers. Who did she lose to? I don't know. 
James? No, I don't know. Helen Mirren beat her out. And the Queen? I think Meryl is like notoriously always nominated and she hasn't won all that frequently. Right, but she has won, right? She's won. There's a scene later when Nigel, he believes he's about to get the job of his lifetime. It doesn't work out for him. It's pulled out from him at the very last moment. And the director, David Frankel, apparently the direction he told Stanley before uh, the, the scene was filmed, he said, imagine you're an actor who is sure that they're going to be getting the Academy Award and then they call someone else's name. First of all, that's a great piece of direction. Meryl Streep overheard that, and she goes, ha, I know a thing or two about that. How could she have said that if she was full method? Because Miranda Priestly was never nominated for an Oscar. After the fact, when she went back to being Meryl after she got her feelings hurt at Kraft. (laughs) (laughs) You know what's fascinating? Uh, Did you know who this role was actually written for? Emma Thompson? Uh, It's somebody, she turned down the role because she didn't want to be typecast as a villainous woman. And she had just been, in the late 90s, you could say the first Disney live-action film and its sequel. Oh, Glenn Close. Yes, yes, Glenn Close. I could see it. All right, so in terms of standing the test of time, there's one thing that kind of immediately leapt out to me about this movie, and that is the fact that it takes place in a magazine's office. And magazines are far less of a thing now. I believe that there is still a print edition of Vogue. Correct. But I would have to assume that its circulation numbers are far less today than they were in 2006. I would assume that the circulation numbers are lower. However, Anna Wintour is still in role. It's still... A huge magazine. I mean, Vogue is thought to be the fashion Bible. They do the spring edition, which is huge. She's the one who handpicks everybody who can or cannot go, you know, to the Met Gala. So while the magazine is probably a little bit obsolete, I don't think completely. I think there are a lot of people who still rely on that for trends. I'm glad that you said that because I was curious if, like, it is still a thing, even if it's less of a magazine in paper. I think it's still a thing. Okay, okay. And again, this is not my world, so I don't know. So I'll I'll defer to your expertise on that. And even like (laughs) the part of the movie where they have to deliver the book to her every night, part of me was like, well, they wouldn't need to do that now because they could just do it digitally and, you know, you wouldn't need to run an actual physical book to her. And I have no idea what Anna Wintour is like in real life. And of course, we should say that Anna Wintour is the inspiration behind Miranda Priestly. But um, I could also imagine that some people who are old school would just want it on paper and they would like the feel and they've always done it in a book and they like that and they just wouldn't want to change. So I could buy that even now in 2023, that is still how someone would do it. It's also... A task. It's a task that she expects her assistants, who obviously we'll get into, she treats like absolute crap. It's another thing for them to have to do. It's another test for them to most likely, in her mind, fail. So yeah, digital would probably be better, but I could see it being a thing. And um, Al, you said that Anna Wintour is based on Miranda Priestly. The thing about it is that Lauren Weisberger, who is the author of the book, work directly under Anna Wintour at Vogue. So it's not even like a thinly veiled caricature. 
I think it's probably pretty spot on. What it is, is it's a Roman Aklef. That's a novel based on real things okay. that all the names are changed. Valley of the Dolls, that, that's a famous uh, Roman Aklef. Uh, Lauren Weisberger, a college contemporary of Alan and I, uh, we, we attended school with her. I believe Did she you? graduated a, a year or two above us. Um, She had this job. And then this is not exactly her story. She never claims it's an autobiography. It's it's a novel. That's quite the revenge that you could uh, put on your old boss. And I would actually almost wonder if that's why they didn't make the sequel to the movie, if Anna Wintour was like, all right, enough. I mean, I don't know. I have no idea. There were designers and models who cameo in this movie, but there are a lot more who did not cameo in this movie and who did not want their clothes featured in this movie because they didn't want to piss off Anna Wintour. And it's debatable if she said specifically, nobody better do it, or she didn't even fucking have to. Hmm. And people were just worried about, will this make her mad? And there are a lot of people who are just plain afraid of her. She's powerful. Exactly. And so they didn't want to piss her off by appearing in this movie that makes her not look great. And of course, you know, there is the the cover of, no, no, this isn't Anna Wintour. It's Miranda Priestly, a fictional character. But everyone pretty much knows that it is her. Depending on who you talk to, Anna Wintour did come around to this movie and did eventually say that she liked it and she was more upset about the novel, which kind of made her more of a villain. And this movie sort of presented her in a somewhat human light and shows her as like a a person. There are peaks of emotion. Exactly, exactly. And she said something about anything that shines a light on high fashion, that's good for the industry and I'm all for it. But then the director says that once he saw her many years later at an event and he went to shake her hand and she shook his hand and said, I'm the guy who directed The Devil Wears Prada. And then she immediately pulled her hand back. So maybe she doesn't love it. Who knows? She doesn't seem... To be the jovial type. She seems to be somebody who takes herself extremely seriously. You'll see her with the pursed lips and the sunglasses on inside. I would think that she didn't specifically love this book and subsequent movie that, you know, are probably just not using her name to avoid a slander lawsuit. But I think that there's enough parallel behavior perhaps and abuse that she she wouldn't love it i can't imagine that she would especially when people started to deduce who miranda is quote unquote based on right Uh, i believe it would be a libel lawsuit oh excuse me slander spoken the movie is spoken but it's based on a script so that would be libel oh oh um hmm that's that's a good one i'm not sure i'll email legal and find out i mean i guess the novel would have been uh slander Slanders when it's oral. Lawyer listeners, write into us at Tested Time Pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Let us know. <laughs> um, but all right, so because Miranda Priestley, who's not Anna Wintour, don't sue us for slander or libel. Um, but Sam, have you ever had a boss like that? No, not to that degree. I did have a boss at one point who was very verbally abusive to everybody. At one point. I was directly beneath him, so I kind of was able to stand up to him to a point, but he was just known across the corporation for just being awful and cursing at employees, and he ruled with an iron fist, 
he was no Miranda. He just was some guy at a gym who thought he was bigger than he was. So, <laughs> What about you, James? Oh, I absolutely have had Miranda's bosses. And there's a lot of things that reminded me of uh, medicine in this film. And a medical really? school and residency. I've had people that have screamed at me and been such a fucking asshole to me and they're so unnecessarily rude think so highly of themselves but they're so fucking good at what they do that they're right they could have said a lot of the things that they say in a different way but in the end they're absolutely right in what they say and I love that scene where Miranda uh, talks down Andy about her uh, blue sweater and she knows every detail about it and this was not just some random like ceo that's just you know born into the industry nepotism this character is so knowledgeable at it i don't really care that she is a, a bitch and i would almost argue i don't think she comes across that poorly i think she comes across as what i would think of as like an asshole surgeon who's also brilliant you know i hate certain people that made my life pathetic and horrible for the time I was with them. But if I had a relative that had the disease that they take care of, I'm saying you got to go to that asshole. That's who you got to go to because they're the best. So it reminds me of uh, bosses I've had. What about you, Al? Uh, have you ever had a boss that reminded you of Miranda Priestly? Yeah. And not because they were harsh but fair, but because they did like the bullshit power moves. And I think that is sort of different from what you're saying, James, about like someone who yells at you and is nasty, but is doing it to make you better. Like Miranda does shit to Andy just to put her in her place. That's the only reason she does certain things. Like, for example, when she demands a steak before Smith & Walensky is open. She's just doing it to make her do it. Uh, she calls her Emily, and then Andy says, oh, my name is Andrea, but you can call me Andy for short. And then a second later, Miranda looks at her and says, goodbye, Emily. Like, that is a power move. She's only doing it to put her in her place, to show her, I am more important than you. And that is not a good boss who's trying to teach somebody a lesson, who's trying to help somebody grow, who's trying to make you, James, a better doctor. That's just being an asshole for no fucking reason. And I have worked for people like that. Ugh. And I could tell stories. I could take up this entire episode telling stories like that. Don't worry, I won't. But I worked at a certain MTV reality show whose name I won't say. But there were two executive producers who I worked for who did shit like that. Ugh. I remember my first week on that show, my boss told me at 6 o'clock on Friday night hey, you need to put together this thing. This is important. You got to do it tonight. Send it to me when you're done with it tonight. I'll read it this weekend and we'll hit the ground running on Monday with it. And I stayed late that Friday night to put together this document. I don't even remember what it was. And then first thing Monday, I was like, so did you have a chance to look at that document? Oh, no. And we don't need it. It's not important. Anyway, I was like, oh, she just did that just to show me that she was the boss. Yep. That's bullshit, Al. I mean, there, there's so many more stories I could tell. But like that kind of thing does exist and it does exist still. I hear stories about it regularly. Like it sucks. Like that is the shitty part of 
Miranda Priestley. Well, and that's the thing is that she'll do anything beyond not bothering to learn her name for a while and calling her Emily. And then it has to be, of course, Andrea when she does learn her name. Right. But throwing the coat in the bag on her desk every day is just so disrespectful. Her dismissive, that's all, so disrespectful. So everything she does is effectively a power move. That's true. I do have to say... I love how sweet it is, Al, that you think that when the surgeons are screaming at the medical students and residents that they're doing it to make them better doctors. <laughs> Maybe sometimes they might be, but the vast majority, they are just Mirandaing it. They're miserable or they just love the power that they have. I mean, Al, we were in a fraternity. When there were pledges, we didn't treat them certain ways, but you saw that there were certain brothers that... Once they were able to do it, they definitely treated you and I horribly because they could. Yes. And honestly, I was thinking about that, about pledging with the steak thing, where we had one guy who made us get him a bowl of fruity pebbles, but only the blue ones. (laughs) And like doing something like that. It has to be a power move because if you were going to eat it, like you wouldn't trust that the pledge who was doing that didn't put something in the fruity pebbles. I didn't like sneeze in it or pee in it or anything like that. But I was sorting those fruity pebbles on my dorm room floor. Like it's a good thing that he didn't eat it. But of course he wasn't going to eat it. He just wanted me to do it to prove his dominance. It's a pissing contest. It's a power trip. You give somebody a little bit of power and they run with it. Unfortunately for you, James, doctors have a lot of power. Miranda Priestley, not Anna Winter, Miranda Priestley has a lot of power. So it's not just a little bit like pledging a fraternity. It's a shit ton. And God, the amount of abuse that comes along with that power is just crazy. Absolutely. Right. Along those lines, when Andy is talking to Nigel and she's trying to like confide in him and he's sort of like, eh, whatever, just stop whining. I really like that scene because he's not being an asshole to be an asshole, but he's also not being like the trusted confidant that she really wants. He's being a realist. And yes, she is mean. And yes, she is harsh. And yes, she is doing bullshit power moves. But also Andy is whining and Andy isn't trying very hard. And if she wants to keep the job, she has to try harder both of those things can be true at the same time. Like you A million can... girls would kill for this job. That's, I mean, the recurring, you know, statement is that if you don't want this job, get over it. You can leave somebody else. He even says to her, he says, I can have you replaced in five seconds. Right. I, I love his character, actually, because he ultimately does end up looking out for her and confiding in her a little bit as well. But he doesn't take the bullshit. He doesn't want to hear it. You don't like it here. Don't be here. Right. So... Let's talk about the love story in this movie, because there was that thing that was going around, I don't remember, a couple months ago about how Nate is the real villain in the movie. And Nate is uh, Adrian Grenier, I think I'm saying that right, the boyfriend. And I think the idea of calling him a villain is one wrong, but two, also like way over inflating this character who's barely in the movie. He's not the villain. The point is, is that he's just not super supportive. First of all, I think he was miscast. Whenever I look at him, I see Vincent Chase. He will probably always be Vincent Chase from Entourage. They didn't even bother to change his hair. (laughs) Um, So that was a little bit of a peeve of mine. You know, he doesn't support the fact that she really is using this job as a stepping stone for bigger and better and maybe more relevant to her career aspirations. 
she's not right. There's a lot of things she screws up too, but I think that he's kind of casted as the villain, so to speak, because he just is not supportive as a boyfriend. He's not a good supportive partner for his woman who's trying to build her career. He's not as understanding. Now, she does basically ditch him on his birthday and then, you know, go screw somebody else when she's in Paris. But before any of that happens, he doesn't translate as proud of her. I've seen this argument. Uh, I've heard it since I've uh, watched the film a few days ago. And this seems to be very much like the uh, whole Karate Kid thing that came out about 10 years ago that Daniel was the bad guy. And there's evidence to it. Daniel picked a few fights that he didn't have to do, et cetera, et cetera. And this is certainly an argument. Uh, Nate is not uh, very supportive in, in ways. There's a terrible scene where Andy gifts all of them uh, fashion things. She gives one of her best friends a $2,000 bag, and then her boss calls, and they play keep away with her phone. I thought that was a total dick move, especially after she just uh, you know took them all out. My friends would get knocked in the teeth. <laughs> <laughs> and you could say that the, uh, the boyfriend is more of a, possibly a foil. I don't think he's meant to be that way. I think more on the surface, he is supposed to be the voice of reason. And I'm saying that with air quotes. It's a very superficial level of, Andy, you need to be true to your friends. And Andy, you don't want to work in this business. Look at me. I'm just a jeans and t-shirt guy. Every scene with me and our friends is supposed to be good. And the fashion world is bad. I do think that Nate is meant to be the good guy. Weirdly, because he takes the job and she's like, yes, I want this good job and I'm going to follow you to Boston and we're just going to have a life away from all of this, just me and you and our love. I don't know if it pulls it off as well. I have problems with the whole love story, but I do think he's not meant to be the villain. I don't think that he should be talking about Andy's career when he is a chef and the grilled cheese that he makes for her is clearly burnt. (laughs) I mean, how dare you knock somebody else, sir? How very dare you, Nate? You burned the grilled cheese. And then when she didn't want to eat it because she was stressed about work, you gave her crap about wasting $7 worth of Jarlsberg. Well, you burned it. I wouldn't want it either. And that's your career? Stop. That's funny. Uh, Sam, you read the novel, so uh, you know this. I just read about it. That in the novel, I think Lauren Weisberger made a much better decision. The boyfriend, uh, it's too much of a strain on her relationship, and it ends. That's more of a realistic life lesson. You know, she lost a, a relationship because of this, but she did learn, and her next relationship will be better. I do think that's a better ending. I, I didn't really love that Nate came back. I, I didn't dislike him as much as uh, I understand this uh, post-analysis is. But I just didn't really like the love story. There's a part at the end when she uh, decides to leave Miranda and she throws her phone in the uh, fountain. She no longer is a slave to Runway Magazine. And there's this great crane shot. It zooms out and she's walking down into, you know, walks into the sunset. And I'm like, this is a great place to end the movie. And then there's a tacked on, well, you could argue it's tacked on. There's a closing scene that basically ties all the loose ends together, but the loose end that ties together mostly that I didn't love was that she gets back together with Nate and he takes her back because she's done with fashion. Yeah, I, I didn't love the love story in this film. I totally agree with you that the love story is tacked on and that last scene didn't really add anything. But it was also confusing because it seems to say that 
She's going to move to Boston with Nate because he got a new job as a chef there. But then she goes on a job interview for a New York newspaper. And the guy says that he would be an idiot not to hire her because, you know, she got this recommendation from Miranda. So then what's going to happen? Because now are they going to be a long distance couple? Like it adds that extra question that it doesn't need to add. He could have just taken her back and they keep living in New York City or she interviews for a job in Boston or something. It just like added an extra layer of confusion that wasn't necessary. Yeah, I agree with that. It it wasn't all that necessary. I guess the internet was bored for a while and they decided <laughs> to resurrect this uh, argument about Nate being the villain. Um, also in that job interview, when she's talking with the guy at the New York newspaper and he's like, what is this at Runway Magazine? You worked there for less than a year. Can you explain this blip on your resume? I kind of feel like as a test of time thing, that doesn't really work anymore like probably not you know like people just move around and especially i hate to say it, but post covid i mean there's a lot of blips on resumes yeah exactly like like the way he says it with the disdain with which he says the blip she um, probably would have to be institutionalized for like i don't know six months after dealing with miranda so i i could explain the blip for her if she wanted me to <laughs> there you go but going back to the the love story i wanted to ask you sam about her tryst with Christian. That's like the love rival who's like hitting on her and hitting on her and hitting on her. And she sleeps with him when they're in Paris. I did not understand this. And I think it's one of two things. Either I'm just a man who doesn't understand women or there's a scene missing. So I wanted to get a female perspective on it because she rejects him over and over and over again. In Paris, he hits on her. He finds out that she broke up with her boyfriend and he's like, come and have dinner with me. And she says no. And then in the next scene, she goes and talks to Miranda and she finds out that Miranda's going through a divorce and they share like this real intimate moment. And then the next scene, she's out to dinner with Christian. And I just didn't understand that turn. Was it like because of that conversation with Miranda, that's why she changed her mind? Or is it just that the movie failed to show us her changing her mind. And that's a thing that I complain about a lot of the podcast and movies do sometimes. <laughs> like a continuity issue. I mean, not even a continuity issue. It's more of like a change in her decision making, which is fine. Characters can change their mind. It happens all the time. But like, I didn't understand where the change comes from. Do you have any insight? Absolutely. Okay. So first of all, Nate has this whole like, conversation with her before she even goes to Paris. And this is when he shows most of his disdain. I can't believe you're doing this. You've changed so much. Oh my God, you were wearing Chanel boots now when you cut your hair and you have bangs and whatever. Right. And he says to her, at least if you were a stripper, if you did it with some integrity, I'd support you. I mean, that's not verbatim the quote, but basically is what he says. Right. So then she says, let's just take a break. It's a good time. So to go back to the old friends quote, we were on a break so they weren't technically together. There's also the zip code rule, right? Which, I mean, <laughs> I am my age, so I don't believe in any of this crap anymore. But there is that old thing where, like, if you're out of the zip code or the area code, whatever happens, doesn't really count. But she and Nate are separated, I guess, for lack of better terms now. Christian has been super persistent. I mean, this is not good. But maybe she feels like she owes him for the whole Harry Potter manuscripts uh, because he did go above and beyond to get the twins the copies. But 
she's also drinking with him in Paris. She's not really thinking about Nate because she was probably fed up with him not being supportive. So I guess he's supposed to be handsome. I don't really like blondes. I don't find him attractive. (laughs) But, you know, he's another one. He's kind of arrogant. He knows what he's doing. He's powerful in his publishing position. I mean, they show him on the side of a bus. So he definitely has his power, too. Maybe she's opportunistic. Maybe she feels like he can help her career. But ultimately, I think she drank too much wine in Paris. And, you know, if you can't be with the one you love, love the one you're with. Ryan, this is not about you. We're talking about the movie. So <laughs> either way, I mean, I don't, I, I, I will say again, I do not believe in it, but I do think there are a couple of reasons why Andy would just go for it with him. I actually think it was exactly like the Friends thing. I was thinking about that whole, we were on a break and, you know, in Hollywood, in a movie, you need that moment that makes her do that. But in reality, people just do these things. I think that's what it was. I do agree with you, uh, Sam. I recognized him. He's uh, Simon Baker. He's on a show, The The Mentalist. I've never seen it, but I always saw that poster for him everywhere. The very first scene he was in, I was like, I think he's supposed to be like the uh, competitive love story, but I would have thought he'd be cast differently because I've never seen this film. I just thought it was going to be someone else. I don't know what the attractiveness of him, but I just thought it was going to be more of like a prettier person maybe that she would have a kind of a crush on. Fair enough. I personally have a crush on Nigel, so I I get it. I mean, Stanley Tucci is amazing. Amazing. And do you (laughs) know who's almost cast in this role? No. So I read that the, uh, and you can confirm this or not, that the uh, Nigel character in the book is much more flamboyantly gay uh, versus Nigel's, uh, you know, there's a couple glances. He glances at a couple men as they go by, but, you know, it's pretty subtle. He would have been fantastic in this role, but I think it would have been more comedic because he is just hysterical. It's this actor, uh, Thomas Lennon. Al, you know who that is, right? Oh, of course. I mean, I I grew up on the state. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the state. Uh, I know him from Reno 911. Sure. And I mean, everything he's in, he's just so funny. And uh, I mean, I'm seeing him as Lieutenant Dangle, who's uh, from Reno 911. And I think it would be hysterical. I think this role is not meant to be comedic. Although, you know, to be fair, I'm sure Thomas Lennon could have played it straight as the director might have wanted. No pun intended there. See, I think Stanley Tucci, he's not as flamboyant as he was in the book, sure. But first of all, he is impeccably dressed throughout the movie, which of course, he's the art director for Runway Magazine, not Vogue. Um, (laughs) So he's dressed impeccably. And While he might not be staring openly at men, he definitely is super snarky when they're online for lunch and he's making fun of what she's eating. And he said, oh, does somebody have an onion bagel? He's just, he's snarky with his delivery. He calls her six because that's her size. As if to insinuate that that's large, it's not at all. The uh, national average for women is actually a 14. So she was way below. I mean, he is proud of her when... She gets down to a four later on. I think he fit that role absolutely perfectly. Actually, fun fact, I don't know if you guys know this, but Emily Blunt set up Stanley Tucci with her sister. So what I think is awesome, and I would kind of like to be invited over for game night, is the fact that Emily Blunt and John Krasinski are married, and Stanley Tucci, and I think her sister's name is Felicity. Felicity Blunt are married. So Stanley Tucci and John Krasinski are brothers-in-law. And how amazing is that? Jim Halpert and Nigel. That is very, very funny. 
Emily Blunt was uh, on Smartless, the podcast I like with uh, Jason Bateman and Will Arnett and Sean Hayes, nice. and you know, she was she was talking about how this movie changed her life because it you know made her a superstar. Before that, she was a working actress, but you know not a, a household name, and also it like impacted her family. You know, like she has a new brother in law because of this movie. She's such a bitch in this movie. Her role is so great, but but she is so fantastic like she really does steal every scene that she's in she I does um but i wanted to go back to what you were saying about like the fat jokes because there's so much in this movie where anne hathaway is and i'm making the biggest air quotes i possibly can fat in this movie and like no not at all she's not she's anne hathaway and I've looked at Anne Hathaway in other movies where she wears less clothes and been like, someone really ought to get that girl a sandwich. So for her to be the fat one, like, I get it. It's high fashion and everyone there is a size zero. I felt like some of those jokes were, one, I think not funny because they're making light of eating disorders. But two, just like they didn't work because she's not a a heftier woman. She's not a chunky actress. She's Anne fucking Hathaway. She's really goddamn skinny. She is. And I actually seethe. I, I like gasp every time I watch it because I do watch it pretty frequently. And Meryl Streep is talking about how disappointed she is that Ahandria can't get her flight home in like a hurricane. So when they finally reconnect back at the office, Miranda goes on this whole diatribe about how she didn't want to hire her initially, but everybody in HR kept sending her the the same old thing, the tiny little eager, wide-eyed candidates. And she said, but I went for the smart fat girl. And I just, I gasp every time, because first of all, I'm not okay with those kind of jokes. I think they're cheap shots. But again, that's Miranda pulling her power move. But yeah, in a in an industry like that, that is just so aesthetic to them, somebody like Anne Hathaway or Andrea is enormous, which really is ridiculous. And that's why I think they play on that. Now, how she's dressed, maybe a different story working at a fashion magazine, but sure. the size is completely uncalled for. I get exactly what you're saying. I had the same problem because, yeah, I know they're trying to say she might be fat for the, the fashion magazine. But she's also seen as not good looking. And this is the second Anne Hathaway makeover that we've seen. We, we didn't see it. I'm seeing as a, as a viewing audience what we've seen. She also had one in The Princess Diaries. But I'm sorry, in the beginning of this film, she's 23-year-old Anne Hathaway. She is gorgeous. She was standing next to the quote-unquote biggest supermodel in the world. Yep. I think she's prettier than Giselle Bundchen, who is gorgeous as well. Well, so I think the whole thing with the makeover in this movie, it does fit because they're trying to show that she's actually becoming one of the clackers and she's getting more immersed and actually starting to maybe give a shit about her appearance and fashion. But I do think it's funny that uh, they throw on a pair of glasses on Giselle and that's supposed to ugly her up or whatever, make her not so Giselle. I don't know why glasses are always supposed to do that. It was the reverse of the Princess Diaries. Right. right. Wasn't that a thing in like one of the scary movies? Like, oh, she has glasses and overalls. Gross. And then as soon as she takes off the glasses and lets her hair down, oh my God, she's gorgeous. Sometimes it's a trope. For Andy, 
it's more of a glamorization over time. It's her giving a shit about her career and and allowing Nigel to help her. Because initially, when he gives her the pair of shoes to change into, she kind of looked at him like, I'm not wearing these. And then when she started to get the hang of the expectation there, she's like, all right. And she went into the closet. My question is, how come everybody who works there is not fighting over the contents of that closet? I was wondering that. Especially bags, especially accessories. <laughs> I think it's because Nigel gets to decide. That's that's the Fair. impression I got. And I oh, think he's very, Nigel's very friend. selective. Because I think most of that stuff goes to sample sales. I don't think uh, most people are allowed to take them. I could see that being a major bitch fight. <laughs> over new Chanel bags? Yeah, no, I, oof. <laughs> and especially Emily being the way she is, because she comments on something Andy walks in wearing. Uh, I think it's the boots. Now, shoe size is shoe size, waist size, bust, whatever. But bags? Yeah. <laughs> I was wondering that about like, she's so put together because Nigel is helping her. Like, how does Emily afford all of those clothes? Right. Is she independently wealthy? Like, wh- where does all that money come from? Because this high fashion stuff ain't cheap. And it seems like she's not getting all of her clothes from Nigel's closet. So something's got to give there. Well, I know now there's a business called Rent the Runway. Um, Have you ever heard of this, Sam? Yes. Someone basically had the idea that this closet full of like thousands of clothes that, you know, are just going to go wherever. Someone basically buys all of them and they own those things. And you can you have like a subscription to this uh, service and you basically could take out like three or four outfits at a time. Yeah, I don't know that it would be practical for like daily professional attire. I think it's for a wedding or right, like for events and things like that. It's a brilliant idea. But yeah, you have to wonder where Emily is getting her money from. Going back to something you you mentioned a, a while ago, James, like that that scene where Miranda dresses down Andy about like the fashion and where it all comes from. That made me think of another work experience of mine because it all stems from when Andy says, I just don't understand this stuff. And that's what sets Miranda off is the fact that Andy refers to high fashion as this stuff. And I once worked with an editor who didn't like the show that we were producing. And he said something about like, oh, you know, this shit takes too long to put together. And the executive producer dressed him down and was like, it isn't shit. It is work. And that guy never referred to our work as shit ever again. I actually always laugh too, because the outfit that they're discussing, I always thought was hideous. It's a red and white dress. And then they're debating which turquoise to my eye, turquoise belt to put on. And the assistant who's working with Miranda says, I don't know, they're just so different. But to the untrained eye, they're not that different. So Andy's initial reaction is to kind of snort. And that's when Miranda just kind of gives her that look. And that's when she says, I just, you know, I don't understand this stuff. And Miranda goes off of this whole diatribe about the sweater Andy's wearing being Cerulean blue and how that started with Valentino showing military jackets during whichever fashion week and how everybody in that room had something to do with that sweater that was Cerulean blue that because she was Andy was probably found at the discount rack somewhere. It's the best speech in the movie, I think. I think the best line in that speech is the final line where she basically says, So that blue sweater that you think you picked out, oh, no, no, no. The people in this room picked it out for you. I think we should probably talk about how Andy 
finds out the information from Christian about the takeover. I mean, she's banging on the door while she's in a meeting when they're in Paris. She's just so loyal and she's trying to make the best of the situation, not understanding that Miranda already pulled the wool over Nigel's head, so to speak. And she, she, she did her power moves and it was already taken care of. Andy didn't know that. And she was freaking out for her friend being Nigel. Well, She's freaking out to protect Miranda because she feels more of a connection with her after she saw her without her makeup and she heard about the divorce and, you know, they had that connection and everything. She was a human being for once. Exactly, exactly. And the whole, like, twist where Miranda announces her rival was going to take over at this company, which was a job that Nigel thought he had, first off, it made me think of... The Morning Show. I don't know if you've watched that. I started it, actually. I really like it. That is the Matt Lauer story. I don't care what they say. Oh, 100%. But but there is like a similar scene where... Don't spoil it. I'm only like four episodes in. You've seen it then. Oh, the, Bradley? Yeah, like there, there's a scene where Jennifer Aniston is at a press conference and she just makes a surprise announcement about who's replacing who that, you know, everyone has to go along with because it's a public announcement. Fair. But Miranda really shouldn't have that level of power over this other designer's company. Like, he is doing a private thing separate from her magazine, although I guess the counterpoint is that she is so powerful in the world of fashion, she can say who he's hiring and who his business partner is because, you know, if you want your new company to be featured in my magazine, you're not going to piss me off. You're hiring who I say you're hiring, right? I believe it. Yeah, it was confirmed in the scene with uh, Andy and Nigel because when they toast to his dream job, he tells her all about how he's going to be the head of blah, blah, blah. And she goes, oh my God, isn't Miranda going to kill you for leaving? And he goes, what are you, crazy? She knows about it. She's the one who orchestrated this. I would never do that without her uh, her knowledge. So it's I think it's very suicide. clear that uh, yeah, you would not do this without the blessing of Miranda Priestly. No, but I'm saying that Miranda has the power over this other guy's company. I'm saying that. I agree that that's what they're implying in, in that She's scene. She's got a shit ton of power. Yeah. Is it? I get it. It just felt like we feel bad for Nigel because we love Nigel and he's <laughs> Stanley freaking Tucci. I also was thinking that I felt bad for the guy who just was told that his business partner is this random woman who maybe is a good magazine editor-in-chief but maybe doesn't know anything about business you know right. like he, he just got told that they're like, all pawns miranda is the bishop i don't play chess bishop <laughs> I, queen? I think queen, queen. she'd be the exact she'd yeah be the queen i think queen's more powerful than bishop i okay um, and as well she should be she's royalty but in this world of high fashion she is the queen even when they show her the dress they create for her and they said it's all based on nonverbal cues and if she purses her lips and when the model is trying on the dress and the designer sees her purse her lips he he scurries the model out of here get out of here when she's not pleased with something everybody is going to feel it well let's wrap it up uh sam what do you think about 2006's the devil wears prada does this film stand the test of time Absolutely. It does, because like we were all saying, there's so many nightmare bosses out there, unfortunately. Um, I had a conversation with a friend last week, as a matter of fact, and she is high, high level in the cosmetics industry. And she was telling me how her 
immediate boss has some very Miranda-like qualities, and the way she is spoken to is appalling. I mean, this woman sounds like an absolute HR nightmare, and this is presently going on. And when you think about it, fashion, cosmetics, both aesthetic companies based on appearance, I don't know if that gives these female bosses, or any bosses for that matter, the right to just be complete assholes and and verbally abusive to their staff. I think that the way fashion is treated and the fact that there are people just so enamored with it will always probably stand the test of time because there will always be artists who want to create. There will always be the Valentinos and, you know, the Gabanas of the world. So I do think between the relationship between the boss and her employee being Miranda and Andy, I think that will always unfortunately exist. I think the world of high fashion will always exist. I think beyond the overall, you know, nuances of the movie, I think the general feel of it, it's a fun movie, even though God, Miranda is just such a bitch. And so is Emily. It is a fun movie. And I don't think that'll ever change. I think that this movie will always stand the test of time. Even if magazines aren't really as, I don't want to say fashionable now, but, (laughs) you know, even if magazines aren't as widely published, perhaps, I think something like Vogue slash Runway will always have a pretty far reach. So, yes, this movie stands up for sure. Okay. James, what do you think? First off, it's a magazine, but this is not about a magazine. This story will continue forever and ever. They'll just replace it with whatever medium. The actual paper of the magazine is the least important part of uh, this entire publication. But um, there's a couple things that uh, I absolutely love about this film. The casting of Meryl Streep and uh, Stanley Tucci, they're just so good. Anne Hathaway, she's fantastic in the role. And Emily Blunt, she's fantastic in the role. I can make an argument um, because I happened to read that Emily Blunt was going to play the role with an American accent, but then someone told her to make a British, blah, blah, blah. The two actresses, they're fantastic. They probably could have even swapped and they both would have done it well. Anne Hathaway could have probably made a a fun, snarky uh, Emily and it could have done well. Some stuff I don't like about the uh, movie, it's, it's really probably screenplay problem. So I already talked about the Nate character. I just don't um, like how it ends. I think he serves his purpose to try to ground her and realize, oh, you know, I want to be me, not uh, not this person Miranda wants me to be. But I don't really understand why the relationship survives. And I think it's better that that it doesn't. I mean, I said the makeover. That stuff doesn't work. She's beautiful in the film. She's beautiful at the beginning, beautiful at the end. And even she mentions to Nigel, oh, now I'm a size four. I'm like, You weren't bigger. Maybe she was, but I didn't see it at all. That part didn't work for me. A couple things in the screenplay I just don't buy from Andy. It reminded me of a film that we reviewed, Al, Showgirls, where uh, Elizabeth Berkeley says it's something called Versace, uh, you know, for Versace. Al, I'm going to ask you, Dolce and blank. Gabbana? Yes. You and I know this, but she's like, Gabbana? I know Dolce and Gabbana. I could not certainly identify one of their things, but the fact that she acts like she's never heard of Gabbana, uh, I didn't really buy that. I mean, I thought that was just a, a mistake in the in the script there. She couldn't spell Gabbana. We don't know if she uh, she's heard of it, but we do know she, she asked for help spelling Gabbana. That's right. fair, I guess. But uh, <laughs> yeah. James, can you spell Gabbana? Um, I, because I looked it up, it does have two Bs. 
<laughs> but I, you know, something I, I said before, I don't really think Miranda comes off poorly. I, AK, I do not think Anna Winter comes off poorly in this film. I think she comes off as what some people might call a type A personality, but maybe for the fashion editor, maybe for the uh, chief of complicated surgery at uh, Springfield Memorial Hospital, sometimes you got to be, uh, you know, a, a, an asshole in situations. I think sometimes their perception is you wouldn't get where you are by being nice to people. I don't know that I subscribe to that idea, which is why I am such a sweetheart all the time. Indeed. I mean, in the end, there's problems I have with the film. I like Stanley Tucci. I think Anne Hathaway is really nice. I think Emily Blunt is really good in this film. But uh, Meryl Streep, I think this honestly might be one of the favorite performances of her I've ever seen. So just for that alone, and the fact that I think the movie, uh, the story is a little smarter than I thought it was going to be. The twist with Nigel, I, I did think that that came out of nowhere. I, I didn't expect that, so I thought that was clever. It works. Um despite the problems I have with it. And yeah, it stands the test of time. What do you think, Al? Devil Wears Prada. It's the second time you've seen it. Does it still stand up? You mentioned the the twist with Nigel. I found that whole montage where Miranda explains how she was outmaneuvering this rival at work by meeting with the owner and then plotting this and doing that. And like, we see footage of it, like as she's describing it, it almost kind of felt like it was an Ocean's Eleven kind of thing of like, here's what happened that you didn't see. I found all of that to be incredibly boring. I don't care. I don't care about her like machinations of how she keeps her job. The fact that she did it. Okay. Yeah, I get it. That's what's important. But like the how she did it, I just could not have cared less. There are some other test of time things that kind of stood out to me, like in the opening credits where you have like all of the women who are getting ready for their high fashion jobs. And then Andy's just, you know, a schlub. She has like a calendar book and she takes the subway. But like the people who work in fashion, they take taxis. Well, now they wouldn't take taxis. Now they would take an Uber or a Lyft or something because, you know, the subway in New York City is gross. Are taxis much better? Not really. Also, plenty of Ubers can be disgusting too, but that's neither here nor there. Yeah, Ubers used to be really nice, and now <laughs> uh, Ubers are are horrible. The subway's always been gross. You know, and as for the whole, is Nate the villain? Is Miranda the villain thing? I honestly think you could make an argument that Andy is the villain and the hero. Like, you can be both. Like, that is a thing that happens in some stories. She starts out as a hero, and she makes the villain turn. You know, Miranda calls her out on it of, like, you stabbed Emily in the back to come here. Nate calls her out on the fact that, like, she abandoned her friends and her boyfriend and all that. So, you know, then she turns to the light again at the end, but she definitely turns towards the dark side. Like, she becomes the villain at a certain point. I don't don't know that I'd call her a villain. She's just, she's 23. She's trying to figure out who she is. It's her first job, a rather glamorous one at that. I wouldn't call her the villain. She makes mistakes. She makes mistakes. She's 23. She's sorting her shit out. I mean, again, I know we touched on it before, but I would say one thing, the only thing probably that does not stand the test of time with this movie are just the jokes about her appearance and her weight. I mean... Those jokes are gross. I think all the fat jokes are unnecessary because her transformation and 
the visual transformation is about what she's wearing. Right. Like, honestly, like when Miranda calls her the smart fat girl, that's a low blow for Miranda, not because it's mean, but because that's not how she insults people. She's really good at taking people down a peg and like anyone can call someone fat. You know, like that's not like a, a good insult. That's like, that's like it's a, not cerebral enough for her. Exactly, exactly. It's kind of beneath her. I, I would hope that it's not said to this day. Probably is. I just don't know if they made the movie now. If it would be such an ongoing cheap shot. I, I don't think so. I mean, I think there's been like a, a shift even over the past few years to be more inclusive with models and model sizes and different body types and things like that. But honestly, like. I think the one word I would use to describe my feelings about this movie is ambivalence. I really don't care either way. I don't care who's the villain. I wasn't arguing that like Andy is the villain. I don't really care either way. I don't care who she ends up with. I don't really care about these characters. I don't connect with them really. I think the plot is really paper thin. This isn't a movie for me. And by the way, I know that because I just said all that, we're going to get people coming at me of like, Alan, you don't understand. This movie is everything. People love this movie. I love this movie. You you very clearly do. And you're not alone. This movie has a lot of diehard fans, people who absolutely love it. The fact that people are debating who is the villain of this movie, like that was happening on Twitter in 2022. This movie came out in 2006. There you go. That proves that there are people who are still really, really passionate about it. I'm not one of them. I would have never thought to do this movie on the podcast. (laughs) You are welcome. I I didn't thank you. Um, But (laughs) it's fine. I'm ambivalent towards it. I don't love it. I don't hate it. I would have been fine to have never seen it again. But honestly, in terms of the movie standing the test of time, I can't really think of many reasons why I would say it doesn't stand the test of time. The movie's not for me. But yeah, sure, it stands the test of time because of all the reasons you said. Like, it is about workplace drama and dealing with a a boss who's pushing you too hard and being 23 and figuring out what you want to do with your life. And everyone's had shitty jobs and had relationships that have gone sour and bosses that sucked and career decisions you've made that you've regret. It's all relatable. It all stands the test of time. Even though I don't love the movie, yes, it does stand the test of time. Fair enough. Thank you for placating me by letting me come on for my fifth one to do a movie you could give two shits about. You know, it's funny that you mentioned that. This is your fifth time on the show. Sure is. And I don't know if you're aware of this, Sam, but we actually have a little tradition for people who come on the show five times. (gasps) James, you know that you try to break this tradition when it's a sister who comes on for five times and they get nothing. But I wouldn't do something like that. Sam, let me just welcome you to the Five Timers Club. Awesome. Here here is your hoodie. Thank you. This is haute couture. You can wear this on the runways in Paris and all of the other supermodels will be jealous. I am so grateful for this. I'll make you a deal. Whatever movie I come on eventually for six will be a movie you actually give a flying fuck to watch. You don't have to do that. No, 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 no. Movies that Al doesn't give a fuck about are are better. I prefer those. I'll come back for love, actually. No. Oh, Courtney. Courtney has dibs on that one. Okay. Um, I'll find a really girly movie. 
Whatever you like. You're, you're welcome to come back for a, a sixth time. Nice. But for now, you should wear that hoodie with pride. I will wear it with pride. Thank you guys so much. You're very welcome. I haven't mentioned wanting a sweatshirt at every single family function for the last year, but this is cool. Thank you guys. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you literally haven't stopped talking about it for God knows how long. You've earned it. Thank You've you. earned it. But that's going to do it for us this week. Next week, we're going to be talking about another movie from the 2000s, Keeping Up with the Steins. Have you ever seen that, James? No, I haven't. Well, it's about a family and a son who is having a bar mitzvah. And I want to watch it next week because my son Eli is going to have his bar mitzvah. Tear, tear. I can't believe he's turning 13. So I want to rewatch that movie. Jeremy Piven is always a good idea. Exactly. There you go. Jeremy Piven's in it. Oh, and you're keeping up with the whole entourage. I didn't even think about there that, you but you're you're right. And maybe we'll do a Kevin Connolly movie in uh, two weeks. Who knows? No, we won't. He was in the uh, Poseidon Adventure remake, but I don't think that's 15 years old. Hard, hard pass on that. Until then, we want to hear from you guys at Test of Time Pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can tell me how wrong I am for not liking this movie. You can tell me that I'm an idiot and a person who doesn't understand fashion. You're right about one of those things. We're both. Just one. But uh, we'll, we'll see you next time, everybody. Bye. Bye.